I think I might owe you an apology. I was incredibly grumpy last time we met, and for that, I'm sorry. I'm not grumpy this time. Oh, no. This time, I would say I'm in more of a celebratory mood, because it is the end of August. I'm sat in Richard, but I'm not alone. Next to me are two sacks of barley. I'm Ben Richards, and in partnership with There's a Beer for That, this is Growing Beer. Well, I said that last time I'd have a better idea of where we would stand, and I do. And it's actually, it's not that bad. For all of my complaining and whinging about the weather, the pests, the weeds, the growth of the plants, or the lack of it in some cases, I should have had more confidence in our little allotment. The weather has finally eased off. I've had a few days away to recover from July, and as you can tell, we've made it to the barley harvest because I have these two sacks right next to me. Now this week, we'll be looking at how the rest of the plot and ingredients have been getting on, how the harvest went, and I'll be getting some advice from beer writer Mark Dredge. Now before that though, back to the beginning of August. Things started off just as badly as July finished, uh, with even more rain. I mean, there weren't the flattenings like the month before that, but instead I could see this kind of general chipping away at the plants. It was thinning out the barley, it was creating a very damp environment for the hops, and as it took out these patches and thinned it out, it not only reduced the number of barley plants, but the more light that, that got through, uh, the more the weeds were able to take hold and really start to, to get going. I mean, by the end of sort of what, second week of August, it started to resemble a turf war, uh, with some areas still holding out strong for the barley, but others had just become overrun by weeds, reaching up to four, five feet high maybe in some cases. I'd almost given up on the smaller bed by the hedge, really. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, the shade from the hedge and the big tree behind it, it led to, a, shall we say, an imbalance between the barley and the weeds. I mean, and, and in general, I could see the beds turn from what had been a classic golden yellow colour to a more, uh, shall we say, dull brown with, with, with flashes of green in the middle. I mean, I was very keen to get harvesting, but at the start of the month, the grains weren't quite ready yet. I've been waiting until they're hard enough to, to push your nail into and not leave a mark before I picked them. If they leave a little indentation or they still feel a bit soft, they're nowhere near ready. The grain hasn't hardened and you can't harvest it yet. I mean, some of the really late growers on the bed, they were still plump, wet and soft inside. So they're nowhere near being ready and I pretty much had to write those off. But the majority of that barley is still standing. It was almost there. I mean, each ear holding about 20 grains, all of them shrinking down, hardening and very, very close to being picked. Now I had a few days away in the middle of August, but when I got back, the sun had been out for a few days, it had finished off that ripening process, and it was time to go. The next morning, it was harvest day. Now, it's a day that I had been building up to for months. Ever since the start of this project, in fact, before I started, back in 2016 when I started to think about this, I was dreaming about the perfect crop. And until August, I was genuinely imagining a real Poldark moment, shirt off, scythe in hand, and sweeping the crops down. Reality is quite different. I, I'd made a lot of assumptions and I, I think also made some things up in my mind there that the, the weather would be perfect and sunny, a glorious day, that the crop would be this huge, thick, golden barley and that I would somehow, in six or seven months, become much more buff than I actually am. So uh, <laughs> I'm fairly slim. I'm in reasonable shape, but I'm no Aidan Turner and I don't go to the gym. 
So I thought it'd be best for everybody if I stayed fully clothed. And then onto the actual scythe itself. Didn't bother. It was quite clear that the mix of barley and weeds that I had in front of me, it just didn't lend itself to that classic harvest technique. Instead, I just gathered it up in bunches by hand and I picked the ears off by hand. It didn't look anything like a classic uh, or vintage harvest scene, but it was a fairly effective one. Actually, it did end up being quite a nice afternoon because uh, my wife, my two children and my parents-in-law all ended up helping out and helping to clear the main bed of all of the plants. Now, once it was all collected, I was essentially left with bundles of stalks and sacks of barley ears that needed their grains separated out. Now, the classic way of doing this is by threshing. It's physically forcing the grains out of those ears and then winnowing, where you use the breeze or wind to blow the light, unwanted chaff away and leave the finished barley grains. Now the threshing bit was easy. I've got so little barley that just a few hours of scrunching up by hand did the job. Uh, just putting it into a big tray, one sack at a time, and using my hands to twist and break it apart. Now the winnowing wasn't so easy. Well, actually no, that's a lie. The winnowing was easy, I just did it in the wrong place. <laughs> there was no wind on the plot that day, so I decided to set up camp in my kitchen with a hairdryer. Uh, I thought that the hot air would help just add a bit more drying to the grains if any moisture left on them, and it, it allows for a very controlled blast of air to separate the chaff from the grain. But the problem came when my uh, long-suffering wife Kerry, who for the record has actually been very supportive, of, of this project from the start. She, she discovered the mess uh, you create when you blow about 10 kilograms of plant matter and dust around a room with essentially a small handheld uh, fan. I won't repeat the conversation, but it's safe to say that I shan't be doing any more household winnowing ever again. Domestics aside though, it did leave me with two full sacks of barley. Now, when I say sacks, I don't mean the traditional uh, or the big 25 kilo sacks that uh, you know people transport grain, flour, different foodstuffs in. My yield is less than that. And to make it seem more bountiful, I decided to buy myself a load of these, I'd say small, possibly even tiny Hessian sacks. And they hold about four to five kilos each. Basically, as long as you take a photo or look at them with nothing next to them, for comparison, uh, they look great. Uh, the second that allotment cat wanders into the shed and sits next to them, you realise just how small and unimpressive they are. The grains are also a little on the small side, but they are dry, they're off the plants, and they are ready to be malted. I've also weighed them. The total weight is 7.8 kilos. So as it stands, it's enough to brew about 35 litres. Uh, if you think back to episode three, when I was talking to Steve at Crisp, we were banding around numbers like 25, 30, 35 kilos of barley come the harvest. But as you know, it hasn't quite worked out that way. A few things have gone against me. I've gone against myself in a few decisions I've made as well. However, it is unlikely that I will be brewing with 7.8 kilos. I'm going to be sending the grain back over to Steve and his colleagues because they're going to run some tests on it for me. They're going to see how much of my grain is actually uh, alive, how much it is useful. So we are not quite out of the woods yet. And it really is out of my hands, though. Speaking to Steve uh, a few days ago, he explained how the organic barley crop this year across the country has been affected by the weather. It's not been a good year at all. And as well as affecting the total uh, yield that's come off of, of, of the fields, uh, it's also affected the dormancy period. Uh, and that is how long we have to wait for the grain to think it's no longer winter and to actually start germinating. And that can be anything from three to four, five, six, seven, eight weeks, uh, which could really affect my timing to the rest of this project. So fingers crossed, the test will come back from them. The grain is uh, not only useful and alive and can be uh, malted, but also that it's not gonna take you know, months and months, just, just a few weeks instead. 
So fingers crossed. Onto the hops. It's not just the barley that's really developed and moved on uh, over the past four to five weeks. The hops are looking amazing. Uh, they have suffered over the first couple of weeks with that continued wind and rain, and it took a bit of a beating, but I was really, really strict kept that foliage and those leaves completely cut away for the bottom two feet of the plants to uh, try and stop any disease or damp and mold getting into the plants and actually they're looking really good every single plant is now covered in hop cones the cascade is just a monster that and the fuggles are just heaving and leaning under the weight of the hops all over the different laterals and the parts of the plant. Even the perla and the goldings, the two varieties that didn't really do as much as I was hoping this year, they still got a load of hops on them. And it's looking, it's just looking great. I don't have any concerns now about the hops, about the amount I'm going to harvest. I think, I, you know, I've probably even got enough from just one of the plants to do the whole brew at the end. Now that's partly because I've got very little barley, but it's, it really is a relief to have uh, that barley in and these hops looking so good. Now they're not going to be harvested for about a week at least, I'd say. I've been looking at them, they don't quite feel or smell right yet. So hopefully a few more days, they'll just finishing off that ripening and they'll be good to go. Now what I don't know with the hops is what they're going to smell and taste like and what levels of bitterness they're going to offer. I can't make any comparisons really between the commercially bought varieties of say the Fuggles, the UK Cascade, the Perla and the Goldings because they've not been grown on those farms. They've been grown down here in Devon. You remember Ben in episode two talked about terroir and it, and it really will have an impact, the amount of rain, the sun, the soil, everything like that. But I won't know that until they're picked and I've done some experimentation with them. So that's something for next episode. Now the other two ingredients, of course, water. Water is absolutely fine. I've got absolutely tons of the stuff. There is right now, just outside Richard, 250 litres of it sat in the water butt. I'm going to be using my little camp filter, uh, which is a tiny little handheld hand-pumped filter to take the water out of the uh, water butt and transfer it into sort of big 25 litre containers ready for the brew. Now when you brew, obviously you boil water, and as long as you boil it for long enough, that removes contaminants, bacteria, viruses, that kind of thing. But uh, when you take a sample of water out of the uh, bottom of the butt, you'll see it's not exactly clean, shall we say. It has got a slight uh, yellow tinge to it, and there is so much life teeming about and, and swimming around in that water. And I'm going to try and remove that before I go into the brew phase. Um, any little organisms would be killed uh, in the boil, so I think it's perfectly safe. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, really interesting and unusual ingredients used in contemporary brewing, but I don't think that uh, water fleas and mosquito larvae are, are one of them. So I'm going to be filtering them out by hand until I have the final tubs of water. Now that in itself, though, is going to be quite a mission because my hand pump is not designed for large quantities of water. <laughs> it pumps at roughly, I think it's half a litre a minute. So if I'm going to get a... Wow, it's going to have to be 35, 40 litres of, of, of clean water for the final brew. And that's ignoring any test brews I'm going to run beforehand. Just for that final brew, I've got, what is that, an hour and a half? Two hours worth of pumping to get through all of that? But I'm not going to complain. I'm not worrying about that because anything uh, at this stage and, and looking back over the summer, that means that I can just carry a big tub home, put my feet up, watch a film. I'm completely happy with that. So we have the barley, 
Uh, the hops are so, so near to being picked, and I've got more water than I need. But that's just three out of the four ingredients. Now, in addition to the not particularly suitable Mechnir Calvia that David and Guy found uh, last month, we have got another yeast. The most recent set of tests that came back have found one called Hansenia spora. Again, it's not ideal as it only ferments the very basic sugars and, and it won't do the whole job, really. Uh, it's not that Saccharomyces cerevisiae that I was hoping for, that, that, that just dependable workhorse of breweries all over the world. But it is recognised as a brewing yeast. Uh, it can be found in Belgian lambics and in naturally fermenting beers. So uh, we are getting closer. We're not all the way there yet, but I have found a yeast used for brewing beer on the plot. Now, we're not giving up. We're still trying. I have currently got a three-pronged approach on the go. So I have some hopped uh, wort with ethanol in it on the plot uh, to try and recreate that kind of slightly toxic, harsh environment that some yeasts struggle to live in. And I've got that out and open, trying to attract those yeasts in. I have also got more fruit samples going on, so taking some of the cuttings and the fruit from around the plot, because now as it's sort of end of August, early September, the fruit's really starting to come out and there's a lot more of it available. And I'm also trying a third way. Now, following an email from a gentleman in Denmark who has found his own yeast for brewing using insects, and when you think about it, that does make sense. The bees, wasps, flies, they travel around many, many different plants and sites and fruits all over the place. And so I am now going to be bothering them. I'm very gently, and don't worry, no insects have been harmed in the gathering of yeast, getting a, a Petri dish with an agar solution. And I'm just gently putting it underneath them so that as they fly off of a flower or off of a fruit um, and they land on that, hopefully some of the yeast that's on them will fall down onto that and we'll run that through the lab and see what we find. You know, that's 75% of the ingredients looking good now, and with the yeast hunt very much still alive. Now, with this sort of positivity in mind, I decided to look ahead again. Now, this time, to the style of beer I'm going to brew, and I'm mean, getting a bit ahead of myself again, maybe, but looking right to the end of the project, and hopefully how we're going to taste and enjoy that beer. So I travelled to a rooftop bar in London to share a couple of beers with Mark Dredge. Uh, he's writer of multiple books on beer styles, flavours, food matching all over the world. So we had a quick chat about the final brew and what to serve with it, should I get that far. Mark, you are an award-winning beer writer. I think you've travelled the world pretty much in the search of the best beers. Thank you for helping me out. No, my, my pleasure. This is a this is a brilliant project. Oh, thank you. Uh, now, you have written uh, a fair bit about uh, not just beer styles, but beer and food matching. So I'm hoping I can pick your brains on a few things. But starting at the beginning, uh, how does beer vary throughout the world? Uh, be beer around the world is amazing. And it's it constantly surprises me and amazes me the more that I travel. But the beauty of it is, is that beer is made from four ingredients, as you know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and every brewer has the same four ingredients. Essentially, they order from the same manufacturers, mm -hmm. you know, unless they live next to the hop farm unless they have their own maltins and their own yeast sauce and and you know and their their water but everyone is essentially ordering from the same places yeah but yet you travel and the regionality of tastes and of of beers and of brewing is endlessly fascinating to me and it's one of the things that i that i enjoy the most and when I, you know when i talk about beer um when i, I talk about beer with doing beer training or education things this is what i say it's like you know water grain hops and um, yeast makes beer but there's infinite variety in all of those things you know there's maybe t 250 hop varieties that yeah. you can use yeah um and one hop variety grown in the u.s is different to a grown in new zealand different to the uk water is i mean 
we'll probably talk about this later, but it's th- there's endless things that you can do with your water. Grain, you know, yeah. from one plant, one grass, you can yeah. turn it into infinite different colors and varieties yeah. and combine them in so many different ways. Yeah. So it, it is, um, it is, it is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You've got a lot of choice. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast in the UK may be aware of sort of the classic British varieties. So we've got you know, bitters, porter, uh, mild golden ale, maybe barley wine. How many styles are there across the world, though? I, I want a definitive and exact number. <laughs> <laughs> the exact number is, well, I would say this m- maybe around 100, I oh, think. Okay. Um, it's really hard to, to qualify it all because yeah. there are always new sub-styles coming along. You know, we had IPA. There's IPA is a big sub-style, but there's now Session IPA. There's now Sour IPA. There's Fruit IPA. There's Black IPA, Red IPA, White IPA, Brown IPA. So, you know, it's, it's rather more complicated than just saying <laughs> this is one type. And then, you know, you have a beer... Um, brewed in Germany and you can brew it in the, in the US and it might be exactly the same beer but it'll have a different name and a different kind of sub-style so yeah but mm. I reckon I reckon there's maybe there's maybe a hundred but there's also probably so many more outside of style mm-hmm. that don't fit within uh, a bracket yeah. that don't need a label or a name and how do those differ from sort of one extreme to the other <laughs> so I think well, one example would be like a really light lager, you know, mm-hmm. really simple really pale very refreshing not much malt flavor not much yeast flavor not much hop flavor you go through into the middle. I just talk about IPA. You know, you've got these amazing caramelly malt flavors, this sweetness in there, um, this big bitterness, this bold, deep bitterness, uh, but then the big booming aroma as well of the of the hops. Um, and then if you go to the other extreme, you're looking at um, incredibly strong, rich, say, stouts, 10, 11, 12% stouts, really dark, really thick, like treacle, syrupy, um, and really chocolatey and intense. So, yeah, the, the spectrum of beer flavor is, uh, is enormous. Yeah. I have my four ingredients and they are, I think, gradually limiting my choices as to what styles I can have, okay. depending on the hops I'm growing or how the barley's going in the, s- the type of water. Imagining that there is a big sort of map in front of us with all the different potential uh, beer styles, um, do you think you can help me whittle down my options if I run through what my ingredients are and what of I think course. I'm going to get? Let's do it. Okay. In that case, let's start with the one that I know I definitely have and what it's going to be like, because that is the water. It's rainwater. It's, I've already had it tested. It's extremely soft, as you'd expect. Okay. And despite trying to get uh, some calcium, some salts from the site by grinding up rocks, there's nothing suitable, so I can't do it. You actually ground, ground up rocks. That's wonderful. I, I, well, That's I, I, got, I got a load of rocks together. <laughs> I sent them off to a friend of a friend who's a geologist, yeah. and he went, it's all flint. You can't grind it. It's yeah. not going to work. It's not what you need. So that's, that's failed. Yeah. I have to go with just the rainwater as it is. Mm-hmm. What styles of beer lend themselves really well to a soft water? Um, soft water, you're more so looking at pale beers certainly pale lagers would be the kind of the obvious choice for a, a very soft water mm-hmm. um, if you look at where has the best softest water in yep. the brewing world it would be um, Czech Republic and Germany which are famous for their for their pale lagers the thing with the softness is that um, it gives you a roundness it gives you a, a, a kind of a, you know as you would expect it's the same word it's a softness or it's a roundness of, of flavor mm-hmm. whereas harder water is going to emphasize bitterness more and it's going to emphasize roasted more more okay Imagining then, <laughs> hypothetically, I don't have space in the shed for um, lagering and <laughs> fermentation. Are there any other lighter styles that I could aim for or include with that water? Yeah, absolutely. I think a golden ale, a blonde mm-hmm. ale um, mm-hmm. would certainly be a good starting point okay. um, for that. Okay, sounds good. Barley. Um, yes. There's not loads of it. There's not as much as I thought there would be, uh, certainly compared to the start of the year, following the rain and the wind and all the, the damage that's done. 
I want to try and get as much beer as I can within reason so I know that uh, high ABVs are out. I'm not going to get an Imperial Stout out of this because I'll have basically no beer left at the end of the process. Yeah. And I suspect I'm only going to be able to get one kind of, of malted barley, just one processing rather than a variety. Sure. What does that? Af- how does that affect the uh, that that beer? Well, I think that's the sensible way to do it. I think, you know, for me, as a, as an observer on the project, I want the purest taste of the malt that I can. Okay. So I don't necessarily want to try six different kinds of malted varieties of the same barley. I want to know what that one barley tastes like in its purest form. Yep. So I think a really simple pale malt would be ideal, okay. just purely because then you're getting the the purest flavour from the barley that you have, the purest malt flavour. Okay. Which I think is great. And that actually works quite nicely with the softness of the water as well. Conveniently. I'm very glad you said that. (laughs) (laughs) It's really convenient. Hops. Hops I should have plenty of. They're looking a little too vigorous, shall we say. (laughs) And I planted uh, Fuggles, uh, Goldings, UK Cascade and Perla. Yes. So the original thinking was to try and cover my options as far as styles. But do any of those varieties stand out as working well with a particular style of beer? I think they, I think they certainly all, all would. Um, are you planning on using all four varieties, or are you going to work out wh- kind of rub them when you get them and see what how they smell and taste? Yeah, we'll see how they go. But I'm I'm very happy to take suggestions about which ones of those would sit really well considering the other ingredients. Yeah, I, th- I think f- Fuggles and um, Goldens are naturally they work together. Mm-hmm. You know, they they always have done. Um, so that's a that's a guarantee. You know that. UK Cascades, who knows? Yeah. You know, it could be wonderfully fruity it could end up being a little bit um uh, earthy and bitter a little anglicized maybe <laughs> exactly and you might not be able to you might not be able to to tell its its qualities and then with the pearly uh, again who knows it's german normally yeah. isn't it yeah um so yeah we'll, we'll see whether it's a clean clean bitterness <laughs> i like i like pearly's bitterness it's a very nice clean sharp lager or pale beer bitterness yep. so it works very nicely uh, i mean what are your thoughts on aromas and you know which which hop do you think is going to give you the best aroma I'm I'm interested to see how the Cascade will come out, yeah. uh, being very very different environment to where it's normally grown in, in the US. Of course, so it'll be great to see if those any of those flavours you'd expect from a US hop actually do come through from from my little bit in, in, in Devon. Definitely, it's a really interesting combination of hops, and I don't know if I could tell you another beer that uses those four hops. Yeah, in it, ideal. Which <laughs> I like that. <laughs> gives you kind of a scope to be able to do whatever you want to do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I think good. I'd be very much like. Trying them, then trying them. So working out exactly what flavors you're getting from them, and yeah. kind of formulating the recipe yeah. later in the process for the hops. You know, because oh, okay. some might be the cascade might come out wonderfully fruity, yep. and then you think, well, I would definitely want that for a aroma. Yeah. Um, the pearly might end up not having too much uh, characteristic to it, so then you might think, okay, well, I want that for the bitterness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fuggles and the goldens. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to whilst the barley's being malted, I've got a few weeks in which to actually Absolutely. play around, get them dry and play around with them a little bit so I can, I can, uh, I'll can, see what happens. Yeah. Um, and then finally, uh, the yeast. I still don't know what it's going to come out y- like yet. I've been told uh, by a guy and the guys in the LSI that it won't be quite like a standard Saccharomyces cerevisiae, assuming we can find a cerevisiae, but it will probably be a bit more funky. Okay. What styles of beer jump out to a less than clean cerevisiae strain? Yeah. Well, I mean, you have the whole sour beers of, of Belgium. Mm-hmm. They are made with kind of the purest wild yeast there is because it's just fermenting it from the air. Yeah. But you're going to have something much, much cleaner than that, yeah. I would imagine. What would be fascinating is how the funkier flavors work with those hops because I imagine they would work fairly nicely. And if you look back historically, you know, it's only been in the last 120 years or so that yeast has been clean. And as in like single, single cell yeast before that, you know, you look at the histories of porters and parallels, they would have gone into barrels with 
who knows what kinds of yeast <laughs> or bacteria and they matured for for months or years in yeah. there and the yeast did all kinds of weird things so i think if you're looking at how a pale beer was 150 years ago yeah it's not going to be like the clean bright beers we have today and it w- certainly would have had more unusual aromas and this yeast may well have been may well have been a part of that yeah we don't we don't know okay. yeah that that will be the that will be the unknown and i guess the question would be do you want the yeast to have um, an outward flavor profile or do you kind of want to keep it restrained and keep it within? Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't got a choice. <laughs> Either way, yeah. the yeast will do what the yeast is going to do to it. <laughs> um, so looking back at those four ingredients, then, we're looking at something pale, something lighter because of the water, keeping it simple with the barley, which mm-hmm. would lend itself well to something like that. The hops, you have to see how they come out and what flavors stand out. Yeah. And then the yeast, something along those lines, but with prepared to have a bit of funky flavors in there, be a little bit of tartness yep, in, in there as well. Yeah. Okay, so going back to what you said a minute ago, pales, blondes, yep. maybe Saison territory, depending on the yeast? I, I think if you're gonna get some spicy, funky flavors from it, I think that's leading you in the right way. And yeah. that's, al- that's also nice, you know, it takes you back to the origin of a Saison beer, which is very yeah. much of the harvest. Yeah, you, yeah. Know, you use the ingredients that, you, that you're given. Yep. Um, every year they'll change every month they'll change the yeast will be doing different things so i think absolutely you're getting a a pale i mean yeah who knows whether it'll be dry or sweet because of the how the yeast will actually work um but yeah i think that would be that would be the way to go ideal so moving on from the style i've got a different challenge now yes Uh, making an awful lot of assumptions come the end uh, that everything goes to plan and i've got the final beer I'm inviting everyone who's helped me out, self-included, to come and try that final beer at the same time as me. But a good host puts on food. I can't just serve the beer, and I don't want to just chuck down some chips and sausage rolls at the same time. So I want to find some dishes that really go well with that final style, be it a pale or a blonde or, or, or maybe in a saison, who knows. Yes. You are probably best known for your books on beer and food writing, and you know an awful lot more than I do about beer and food matching. How should I approach this? I think the idea, the the whole story of how the beer has come about is wonderful because it's very much from a place. So I would be looking very much for something local. That would be my first, certainly my first um, place to look. I wouldn't necessarily be thinking about how's this beer going to taste because you won't know until the (laughs) day. No No one else is going to know. So you you can't easily say this is definitely going to be wonderful with this dish because you, you you simply won't know. So I think... There is a there is a wonderful way of thinking about pairing beer with food that is about having a local dish. You know, just think about whenever we travel. If you're in Germany, you'll have a glass of lager and it comes with a pretzel or a, we have a vice beer and a vice first. Mm-hmm. You know, it works there. If, you, if we had that in a London pub now, it might taste slightly odd or and out of out of place. Yeah. But here, if we now have a Scotch egg, then it works. Yeah. If we go to the US and we have an IPA, it works with a cheeseburger or loaded nachos or something like that. You know, there's something wonderful and simple about local dishes and local beers you know they, they've 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 grown up together yeah. they work naturally t- okay. together so my first thinking would be local you know what what local cheeses are there because cheese is such a wonderful you know cheese cheese comes from the land yeah you know the, the, yep. the farm one wan- the, the cow wanders around it it produces some milk and that gets turned into cheese and you know, it it tastes like it's from a certain place yeah and i feel like there's there's going to be a, a rusticness in the <laughs> in the beer yeah, um, and I mean that. Po- I mean that. Uh, I say that well. That, that, that's <laughs> putting it politely, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I mean that politely. Um, and I think you know, a local a local cheese would be just a, a really good starting, a really good starting point. Okay, Mark, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> 
I absolutely love how I've gone from this idea at the start of the project that I can brew any beer I want um, and how I've just seen it whittled down by the plants, the allotment, the weather uh, and the realities of this project really to just a handful of options. And it does look like my best option is for a light blonde, a pale or a saison style of beer and which, you know, as Mark said, it seems like a very appropriate rural option uh, considering the nature of this project. Now, I feel all inspired and, and ready, really, to get on and brew um, and organise the party and plan that final tasting too. But before we get on to that, we still need to harvest the hops and nurse them through this last week or few days and really care for each plant to make sure they are in tip-top condition and those cones ripen as well as they possibly can. And it's the hops that we'll be focusing on in the next episode. I will hopefully be finding out how viable and how good a quality the grain is and how long I have to wait, crucially, until it can be malted and have it back in my hands for the brew. I'm going to visit a proper, real-life hop farm to see how the professionals harvest their crops and I'll be taking down the binds and picking my cones. Now, whilst it's, it's, it's very exciting and very rewarding, I'm sure, that day will be, I'm also a little bit hesitant um, because now the barley's gone, you know, the hops are the last ingredient that I can actually see and, and touch the last tangible thing on, on this plot. Now, don't get me wrong, I am just hugely relieved to be sitting next to the barley in sacks. But the muddy square that the harvest has left behind, you know, it, it does make me feel a little bit sad, really, for what has finished um, yeah, and is now in the past. But let's not get sentimental yet, eh? This beer could still taste terrible. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>